This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Would you call yourself a bit of a hugger, or does the mere thought of a stranger brushing by you in a cafe make your skin crawl? When it comes to being touched, we all have our own attitudes and opinions. But what can science tell us about this understudied and often misunderstood sense? In this episode, we catch up with Professor Michael Banasee, a social neuroscientist based at Goldsmiths University in London and author of the new book, When We Touch. He tells us all about the fascinating discoveries he's made about everything from the effects of mother's skin-to-skin contact on a newborn's growth and development to the boost in performance sports teams get when they regularly hit high fives. So first off, you're a social neuroscientist. So that's a really interesting title. So, you know, can you tell us a bit about what that is, what you do, what that means. Yeah, so so in short, being a social neuroscientist means that I play with brains for a living, which are our living brains, um, I should say. So I do lots of things like brain scanning experiments and also behavioral experiments where you bring people into the lab and you run these tasks. But we also do studies in the real world. And, and all of those studies really revolve around how we interact with other people, so how we socially interact and how we build bonds in our relationships and how we maintain those throughout our lives and the impact that those relationships can have on things like our health and our well-being. And so I study the psychology behind that as well as the neuroscience, as well as the, the kind of what's going on in our brain and when we experience these types of social interactions, be that empathy, be that touch, be that, you know, all sorts of different things really. So you mentioned their touch. So that's the topic of today's interview about your new book, which is all about touch. Really fascinating. I think the first place to start here then is what do we know about what's happening in our bodies when we are touched by someone? Yeah. So this kind of 
depends depending slightly on the type of touch that we're we're receiving so so in a very simplistic time um, let's, let's say i don't know for instance if you were waiting at a train station and someone taps you on the shoulder that type of scenario that could happen to any of us every day i suppose what's happening there is you're you've got receptors in your skin that are picking up that experience and they're sending signals to a few regions in the brain one of the ones that is commonly viewed as one of the most important is the somatosensory cortex so this is a brain region which if you happen to be wearing headphones right now and you've got one of the bands on your head it's almost where that 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 headband would be for your for your headphones so almost just above your ear really a few centimeters up and the somatosensory cortex is pretty much like the mail room for touch so whenever you feel touch on your body sends a signal to that brain region and in that brain region you've got all sorts of specific body representations so what i mean by that that is you've got a body map. So just like we've got a body in the real world, legs, feet, etc., your somatosensory cortex is built up in such a way that it has an area that responds if you're touched on your feet, an area that responds if you're touched on your face, and so forth. And actually, these body maps in the somatosensory cortex look a little bit different to the way we look in the real world. You know, something like our face and our hands, they have much bigger representations because we use those a lot when we touch, right? We we need fine discrimination there compared to something like our belly. I don't know, it looks really quite small in the somatosensory cortex. So if you happen to ever kind of Google this and you look at something like the somatosensory homunculus, you'll see these rather strange, slightly monstrous looking creatures. And that's what we would look like if if we looked like our bodies represented in our brain. So, So that's one side of touch. The other side to it, of course, is that we might also think about not just touch where someone taps us on the shoulder and it's a stranger, but maybe, I don't know, where our partner gives us a hug or a family member gives us a hug or someone strokes our arm very gently in a caring way. And actually... When that happens, you know, it's true, you do you do recruit the somatosensory cortex in those scenarios, but you also recruit a slightly wider brain network. And in fact, actually in our skin, we have dedicated receptors that respond to things like slow, gentle stroking. So those kind of comforting forms of touch. We have receptors in our skin specialized to detect these. And when they're activated, they send signals to our brain to areas like the somatosensory cortex, but they also activate parts of the brain that are involved in processing rewards. So things like, you know, we might find food rewarding, we might find money rewarding, we might find other sex rewarding. Well, touch, comforting touch, we also, our brain finds that rewarding. And some of this also then leads to the release of hormones, hormones that are involved in the experience of rewards, hormones like dopamine, sometimes called a feel-good hormone, but also other hormones. So hormones like oxytocin. And oxytocin is a hormone that's involved in calming us and building bonds and building trust with other people. And it's for reasons like this, which I guess we may well talk about, that touch can often have benefits to our stress and our well-being. Yeah, so that was a fantastic introduction. Let's go right back then. Perhaps not surprisingly, I would say, as you detail in your book, our sense of touch develops surprisingly early, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, incredibly early. In fact, you know, if you look into things like the third trimester during pregnancy, very early on, there's evidence that the developing kind of fetus will respond, you know, to touch. You know, it could be for exploration, if you're kind of touching the the mother's stomach, as it were. But it can also be, there's been studies where, you know, if babies are born premature, you can then look at responsiveness to touch. And you do see this very early on. And really touch is one of these amazing senses, I think, because it's with us from the very first moments of our life. 
life. Some people say it's the first sense to develop, but it's also, when you think about it, one of the last senses that also goes. It's with us from that first moment right the way until the end. But of course, the interesting thing throughout that in our lives is it becomes increasingly complicated maybe after we're born, (laughs) which is all the nuances that come with touch as well. Yeah. So I was talking about uh, newborns or very young babies anyway. Of course, you know, they're unable to speak. They can't really communicate. So you would think surely the sense of touch is probably the most important one that they have. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I think it's really important. I mean, it's it's definitely been shown, you know, certainly very early on that, you know, engaging in caregiving forms of touch with newborns can have really positive effects on on things like their response to let's say painful situations so in in those scenarios they might show less crying particularly in premature babies actually it's been shown that things like gentle pressure massage so very or skin to skin contact that tactile connection that leads to things like shorter hospital stays increased weight gain so there's a lot of evidence showing very early on that it's really important on a kind of health and well-being side but it also matters certainly in early life for how the baby begins to learn and understand the world around them so you know often they're exploring through touch they're putting objects near their near their face you know they're they're, they're using that so that's how they shape and understand and arguably might build a sense of self out of that but also even something as simple as having i don't know a parent or a caregiver gently stroke a baby while they're i don't know watching or seeing emotions seeing an emotional scene that can change how they respond to it there was one study showing if you gently stroke a baby and they're in a a situation where there's maybe some angry or some scary faces they're almost less likely to be scared by them and more likely to learn from the situation than a baby who's not so there's all these kind of nuances that kick in as well so one thing i got from reading the book was you would think you know perhaps yeah we know these early developmental things yeah perhaps that that's intuitive or whatever but they can have very long lasting consequences can't they yeah no absolutely and and this is often actually seen in in situations where um sadly there's maybe a lack of touch so there's been some really harrowing stories that have come out at different times well known case connects to children who were kind of effectively had a had a deprivation of touch and what impact that has and you, and you see there that the impact there can have impacts on not just their how their social skills and their social world develops but also other things like memory and learning and those effects can carry forward for a number of years so that that has been seen there Another example, which is maybe slightly less extreme, but it was a study that that came out only a couple of years ago now. And this was a study that effectively compared premature babies that were born and were able to be touched, premature babies that were born and cared for without immediate touch after birth, and babies that were born full term and they had touch with a caregiver. And what they did in this study was they tracked these three different groups over 20 years and they looked throughout those 20 years at the amount of behavioral synchrony so when caregivers and the child were interacting as they grew up how in sync were they and they found those that were touched early on had more synchrony with the caregiver but they also found that even 20 years later if you put those 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 kids well now adults if you put them in a brain scanner and you looked at what happens when they see somebody else having negative emotions and you looked at the kind of empathic brain regions that become active you saw that those that had more touch earlier on in their lives and had more social synchrony with their caregiver they showed greater brain response in terms of empathy responses to others so all these effects that maybe we don't immediately think about but can carry forward 
Another topic I'd like to touch on is genes, this idea of epigenetics and how that makes a difference. That is in, absolutely fascinating. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this is this is very much a developing field. I should I should caveat whatever I say with that in that, you know, it's um so epigenetics is effectively it's it's the study of how our genes maybe are turned on or off, the types of factors that can can impact that. And there is now ongoing work looking at how whether or not you you know you have early caregiving touch or the type the, the frequency or the amount of it the quality of it and how does that have an impact on things like immune system function and metabolic function and some of the early work is showing actually caregiving contact and that 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 could be skin to skin holding that could be someone stroking stroking an arm either a range of tactile behaviors but those early caregiving contacts can have an impact as an epigenetic factor on genes that are involved in things like regulating metabolic function and immune function as people age. We need to see how well that replicates worldwide. A lot of this work, I should say, has been done often in the US, so we have to be mindful of that. And we we have to see how that how that builds. But it's it just adds to that picture, right, of the fact that touch early on appears to be incredibly important to us as humans. So you talk a lot about different types of touch and different experiences of touch, which I'm sure we'll get into in a, in a bit. But you talk about something called pleasant touch. So what exactly is that? And what do we know about how we experience it? Yeah, so, so pleasant touch, to a degree, as, as the name implies, is is a touch, I guess, that has that we find pleasant and enjoyable. It's a touch that has a kind of emotional context to it, but it, it's, a, it's, it's a context that actually is one that we would think fondly of. So the way this has actually commonly been studied is by looking at people having their arms gently stroked because you know the majority of people find that a pleasant experience you know there are some people that that won't and you know there's obviously in that case it's not pleasant touch for for obvious reasons but but what happens if you experience pleasant touch is you see this kind of activation particularly for that slow gentle stroking of what we call ct afferents and these are receptors in our skin that are particularly sensitive to detecting things like slow gentle stroking you know i should say there are other forms of touch that can be pleasant of course that don't activate those i don't know something like a hug may not necessarily but 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 if you're getting slow gentle stroking and that's the form we're talking about then that's you tend to see that and of course if you find that experience pleasant then what you see is you don't only activate brain regions like the somatosensory system but you activate this wider brain network involved in things like social rewards so you find that touch rewarding and you see the release of hormones that are really important like those involved in bonding calmness and you know other wider kind of uh, experiences of positive mood for instance so you mentioned there hugging so i'd like to go now into talking about different kinds of touch and in all honesty it's something that i never really thought about there's lots of different ways that we touch one another or even ourselves but let's have a look through those so hugging is is a really interesting one i think because some people they'll be like they'll call themselves oh i'm sorry i'm a bit of a hugger yeah (laughs) it's common right isn't it so what do we know about that you know why do we do it you know can you do it for different you do it for different reasons to console someone or to celebrate something it's really interesting yeah hundreds hundreds of different reasons why we might hug right it could be a greeting it could be to show sympathy care for someone could be to show support it could also have more of a, a sinister twist to it as well like we can't discount that you know there's all sorts of reasons why someone might engage in touch so 
certainly when hugs are meant to be supportive or when they're viewed as supportive, then they can have incredibly powerful effects. And I have to be honest, I was really surprised at just how powerful they are. They are just a bit like a bit like you, really. It wasn't, you know, hugs for me were something that, oh, I like the feel of them, but I never really thought much more beyond that. But actually, the science is stacking up now just to show that engaging in hugs that are supportive can have huge benefits to things like how we respond to stressful situations, to how our kind of even how our immune system responds. So so to give you a couple of concrete examples, so one of the studies on stress that I find really interesting was a study that came out a couple of years ago, which effectively had people giving a, a public talk, do mental maths out loud. Might not sound stressful for some, but for me, that's pretty terrifying, right? Before they did this, they either were hugged by someone, they either gave themselves a hug or they self-soothed. They may not have hugged, they might stroke their arm, or they had no touch at all. And then what happened was the scientists measured things like cortisol. So cortisol is a hormone involved in stress response, and they had self-reported stress as well, and they wanted to see what happens in this stressful scenario. And what they found was that being hugged by somebody else, but also even hugging yourself led to a lowered stress response, which is a really nice message, I think, particularly in a world where maybe we won't have someone around to hug us, that if we engage in supportive hugs even to ourselves, maybe that can help. But it's not the only example. Right? There's, there's a number of studies now showing that hugs can impact stress response. It's been shown now in different scientists across different decades have shown this. But with immune system, this is now building more and more. So there was a really nice study, again, that came out. It was in the kind of mid-2010s. And this study was actually with adults in the Pittsburgh area in the US. And basically what the researchers did was they measured for 14 days. They just asked people to keep a diary. And in that diary, one of the things they mentioned was how often did they have a hug? Very simple. You know, how often was it happening? They then brought these people into the lab after those 14 days and they exposed them to a virus. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of pleased these people did the study because I certainly wouldn't have signed up for it. But, but they were they were they were given they were given a cold effectively. And they were quarantined and the researchers just kind of monitored how did the virus develop? How did the cold develop? And what they found was that the people who were hugged more for the 14 days before, and that's a really important point, because of course, if you are sick and you start hugging someone, you might pass your germs on. So 14 days before being hugged more often meant that those people were less likely to develop some of the virus symptoms. So in short, more hugs, less virus development in that particular case. And who would have thought that, right? I mean, when you're having a hug, Every day of your life, typically, you're probably not thinking, oh, this might help me fight off a cold if should it come my way. But there's more and more data building like that. I mean, that's not the only study. There's been more recent work coming out at the University of Arizona on this. So that was one of the things, certainly, when writing the book, I started to go around and think a bit more about how many hugs am I, am I getting? How many hugs am I giving? <laughs> you become much more mindful of it, I suppose, once you pick up on this stuff. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, so coming off the back of that is something that I'd never heard of called cuddle therapy. Yeah. So that maybe sounds not, I don't mean to demean it, it sounds maybe something like the Care Bears would do or something. But what's the idea behind that? Yeah, so I mean, so cuddle therapy, I mean, this is ultimately, I mean, 
for there are some people who you know they really struggle to get touch in in their lives and they they may not or even if they've they've got people around them perhaps those people don't provide the touch and the support that they need and so cuddle therapy is is, is literally it's people who are trained effectively to hug um and they they run these very um you know it's it's it's, it's a professional and relaxed and safe setting where there's all sorts of discussions beforehand and choices of even even some of them they don't actually touch at all sometimes it's just talking about touch right in these scenarios but but the idea is actually it gives people that space to explore touch that maybe they might be lacking in, in, a, in, a, in a safe environment and receive hugs from a trained um, professional there's less i must admit there's less data currently on whether it does or doesn't have the beneficial effects but you know, based on the wider literature, based on the fact that we know things like hugs and touch, supportive touch can be beneficial for things like health and well-being. That's the reason why people are trying to explore it. But it, it just feeds in also to this white to a wider topic, which is actually more and more these days, people are saying they're touch hungry. They're saying they don't get enough touch in their lives. And, you know, actually before the pandemic, it was around about 54% of people that were saying that. That's what we found in a big worldwide survey that we did of about 40,000 people. But as we went through that, up to about 80% of people were reporting they weren't getting enough touch in their lives. And now the data's coming in, it's maybe getting a bit more balanced out, but it's still incredibly high. So this for me is a really worrying trend because we know that touch is important. We know it has this really powerful impact on so many aspects of our lives, the stuff we've spoken about, but also other things like even how teams will work together, how good they work together, or how much we view the quality of our relationships and, and things like this. But more and more of us, are starting to say we feel that we're not getting enough. And that raises the question of how can we bring that into people's lives more? Cuddle therapy is one option. It might not be everybody's cup of tea, but there's other things, you know, as we spoke already, something like a self-soothing hug to yourself can bring touch into your life and help you. So there are there's a diversity of ways where you can get benefits from touch. And I think that's quite important for people who currently lack it. Yeah, so you mentioned that that was something I was going to, like obviously the last few years, it's been a bit rough, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of us have been alone. And um, I remember reading that study and finding it really interesting at, at, at the time. So what do we know about the effects that that had on not only mental health, but physical health? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, now we're seeing more data coming out on how particularly during um, the COVID lockdowns, there was this kind of, I guess, it was a spike in terms of people's longing for touch. They were, people were, you know, much more kind of lacking, lacking touch in their lives and reporting that. And that may sound intuitive to many of us, because I think often it wasn't sometimes until something's taken away, you realise just how much it means to you, right? And even myself as a touch scientist, I, I noticed it much more, I think, during those lockdowns than anything else. But the impacts on that, I mean, some of the impacts have been connected to things like changes in anxiety, stress levels, negative impacts there. And there are some differences in that as well that came out depending on different individual I suppose individual difference factors came out as well. So for instance, some people were affected more than others. So some of us, we have different attachment styles in our relationships. And so what's what's coming out of this data particularly is shown, for instance, that people who have what we call a more anxious attachment style. So these are people who maybe tend to seek more reassurance from others when they're in a relationship. They tended to be more impacted by the lockdowns and a lack of touch in their lives than maybe say someone who tends to be more independent from their partner. So that's what that data is pointing to. But but I, I think in that, we also have to be mindful that just because we have those differences, that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody who was independent from their partner 
didn't mistouch or wasn't affected. It's just that, you know, those who were more anxious in their attachment were more likely to be affected. So we've briefly touched on it there. And obviously, touch is such an important sense. And I think a misunderstood and overlooked sense, to be honest, especially after having read your book. But if it's such an important sense, then why are some people reluctant to touch others or they'll even entirely go out of the way to avoid it? Well, I think we have to keep in mind that that touch is impacted by many factors, right? So, you know, whenever we're touching someone, we bring past experiences to it, present experiences, even future expectations of what might happen. And we've spoken a lot in this conversation about supportive touch, right? Those, those positive impacts of it. I mean, sadly, too often touch has maybe been abused over over the years that license touch has gone gone the wrong way and it's possible that can impact any individual and and we do have to be mindful mindful of that that darker side of touch as well and that that can carry into interactions but i suppose even if you haven't had those really negative experiences of touch there are also other factors that might influence it right so there are studies for instance showing that people who come from more conservative i suppose backgrounds and conservative perspectives that can that that, that can tend to pass on those values can pass on from one generation to another and actually there typically appears to be less kind of effective touch exchange so you might kind of learn that partly for a environmental factor as you as you grow there can be cultural differences and by that, it's kind of different world regions that you grow up in. You might find different norms that kick in around touch. And and that's a really important part of touch that even if you're a particularly tactile person, you know, you might feel really comfortable having touch in your home, maybe, but you don't want to touch out in public because that's just not your norm. That's not you. So touch is incredibly nuanced. There's individual factors, there's contextual, like societal factors, and a whole lot of history that brings into it. And we we have to try and bear that in mind whenever we have our, our exchanges about touch. And that can be hard to navigate. Yeah. So as, seeing as you brought that up then, the cultural background, I think that's really interesting from personal experience. So when I was younger, I had a Dutch friend and she told me it was their tradition. I don't know. But every time she met me, she would kiss me three times. Yeah. As a British person, that made me feel a bit uncomfortable. But I also lived in Japan for several years and they, you know, they barely even shake hands. You know, what do we know about that? Yeah. So th- these are the various norms that, that that kick in. I mean, there are differences between world regions in terms of the ways in which, which they touch. And, you know, you've, you've just given a few really nice, nice examples there. I mean, other examples might be the frequency that people touch. There's a famous study of people in coffee shops in the 1960s. They kind of compared how often do people touch couples in the shop touch over an hour in Puerto Rico, London, uh, in the UK, or for instance, in, in, in the US. And what they found was that people in Puerto Rico would touch substantially. It was well over 100 times an hour, whereas in, in the UK, in London, it was zero times an hour. I'm still surprised by those numbers. I talk about that a bit in the book, but um, but a huge kind of difference in frequency. But behind that, I think it's also important to note that what we are also seeing is that just because some of those maybe public displays of touch might differ, that doesn't mean the affective components of touch. So things like those hugs, those gentle strokes on the arms, etc. doesn't mean they're not present outside of that, right? They might be present in the home. And in fact, actually, the benefits that come from some of these things 
may well be present across the cultures as well. So something like how what we think is appropriate and inappropriate, there's lots of consistency for that across different regions of the world. We tend to be more happy with people we have closer emotional bonds with. Something like the diversity of the different types of affective touch that we experience, that tends to not necessarily be connected to a particular country as much as it's more connected to things like the climate, the climate of the country. So how warm a country is, how cold a country is, can impact things like the diversity. So it's a much bigger grouping variable than simply where people are from that seems to drive some of the factors. And of course, mix in all of that, that you know, you might, for instance, move from one place to another, and then you might start to pick up cultural values. And I think there's a distinction there that can come in. So it's quite a complicated picture, which the, the science is increasingly uncovering, I think, is, is probably the best way to describe it at the moment. So you touched on this this thing about team sports, which I think feeds in to group behaviour as as a whole. But something I found really interesting that you talk about team, like especially you say the Klopp hug, which I think I think a lot of people will be aware of. How does that work? You know, this is really fascinating. The Klopp hug, just in case people aren't, Jurgen Klopp, manager of Liverpool Football Club, incredibly well known for his hugs at the end of the game to the players, and and he, he places a lot of emphasis on them. I'm told, at least in his own. Uh, press remarks um, he says it's all about you know the least he can do to show them for the effort they've put in and and there's good reasons why he's he's smart to do that and you know some of those are there is data showing that you know this actually goes to the nba so the the national basketball association there's the studies there that have shown that teams that engage in more positive touch more in the early seasons this is things like fist bumps high fives etc they tend to go on to win more games in the later season and um, they perform better and part of the reason why the people think this happened this has been seen in other sports is at least anecdotally and sometimes with the data that's come in more through i suppose hard numbers as well that these team members feel a greater sense of trust and a greater sense of cooperation so touch can be a really important part for teams to build those bonds and build that trust and connection. And of course, there's nuance to that, right? I mean, you know, I can imagine if you're if you're Jurgen Klopp, I mean, if you're your manager of Liverpool, you've got a range of players from all sorts of different backgrounds, different norms about touching that team. And maybe some won't want that hug. And I'm sure he judges his hugs. So there is nuance to this that does have to play out. But on the whole, there's a lot of data showing that positive tactile communication in sport can be a really beneficial thing for team performance. Yeah, and that's kind of perhaps, if I was going to speculate, that might be why the Klopp hugs are so effective. Um, but I probably would say that as a Liverpool Football Club fan as well. Yeah, me too, by the way. <laughs> in good so, company then. <laughs> so another really interesting thing was the sales environment. So how different types of touching by waiting staff or servers or other customers can affect how people behave. So what do we know about that? Yeah, so this stuff, this is this is data that goes back now from the 1970s, even up to a few years ago. Studies are showing that those very subtle forms of touch, I don't know, like when a member of waiting staff just taps you on the arm when they give you the bill, can have incredibly powerful effects. So waiting staff have been shown that if they just, if a waiting staff member touches you on the arm, as opposed to just gives you, the, when they give you the bill, as opposed to just gives you the bill, that you're like more likely to give them greater tips. You're going to give them more money for their service. If you go into a bar, and a lot of this is in the US again, but if the the bartender touches you while you're ordering, you're more likely to order more drinks as the night goes on. If you're going, I don't know, into a bookshop and before you go in, one of the the staff just, just 
touches you before you go in. They give you a brochure and they, they touch you about new products in the shop. Okay, that might sound a bit dated now. It was in the 90s. But, um, you know, but let's just imagine you're still going to get a brochure when you go into a shop these days and someone touches you. Well, you spend more time in the store. You evaluate the store more positively and then you spend more money. So there's all these subtle examples. There's also examples even, for instance, in care homes where if you've got someone and you're trying to encourage them to eat, if you gently touch them while they're, you do that encouragement, they're more likely to eat more food so it's not just consumer settings but it's these settings as well and this is just really goes back to the fact that touch exerts an incredibly powerful but often subtle effect on our behavior we don't stop and think about these very simple things and increasingly as we move forward i think we're going to maybe want to think about these things a bit more because the data is not just showing that it's touch between people that do this there's now studies coming out showing that even if you're briefly touched by a robot you're more likely to comply with the request and so this was a study that was conducted by researchers in germany where they basically had students and students were asked would you like to enroll on this course but the question came from a little robot and either the robot touched them when the request was made or they didn't touch them those that were touched were more likely to enroll on the course so again more and more data coming in on this and you know it, we we don't necessarily know all of the, the the exact reasons why the brief touch makes such a difference but it certainly does have a powerful effect and you know there is there is something about it being brief and it being subtle and it being appropriate you know and who does it matters because i gave those examples of being in a shop and you might spend more time or more money if someone who works in the shop touches you as you're going into the store if a customer another customer accidentally bumps into you in the store or touches you you're more likely to scarper and get out of the store there's nuances to this right it's not just touching a store is great for everybody uh you know you've got to get the balance right it's got to be appropriate it's got to be viewed in the right way and then some of these benefits start to come through so that's been really fascinating we've covered an awful lot there obviously we've still got lots to learn so sort of by way of summing up what do you think the future is for research on touch yeah so for me, I think the future probably is going to cut on a few levels. I think more and more we're going to get a better understanding of how we can use touch, supportive touch, to improve things like health and well-being. I think that's that's really positive. But I think the future of that will maybe extend out from simply human-to-human -human touch, but to also look at how we might start to use other forms of touch technologies to bring that into people's lives. So to give you an example, you know, we might all be familiar with wearables. We might have a wearable on our body right now. You know, I'm wearing something on my wrist. What if you're someone who doesn't have someone around you who can give you a supportive touch, but they could send you a supportive vibration through that wearable? Or what if somebody could just pre-program that wearable so it vibrates at a frequency that nudges your heart rate into a state that's nice and relaxed? These types of wearable technologies and what we call touch tech, I think, are going to become more prominent. I think we'll also see interesting things like companion robots and things like this coming through. You know, there are now companion robots. I've actually got one on my desk, my desk in front of me, because <laughs> uh, we're doing some research of it at the moment. But it's a fluffy companion robot that breathes and, and touches and has a tactile component to it, which is designed to interact with the person who has it for those people who maybe are lonely and can't have a pet in their life or don't have that partner around. And I think more and more we'll see that side of touch research moving, trying to make comparisons to say well is this as good as human to human touch and even if it's not well is it is it good enough to actually help some of us and i think that's the new frontier of touch research in my view 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you from the team behind BBC Science Focus. That was social neuroscientist Professor Michael Vanessing. The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or download us on your preferred app store. You can also find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.